Great to have all of you here before the snow. And uh, I'll be excited to see the polling results of your favorite carol. In fifth grade in 1970, I owned two 33 single records. One of them was a song by Three Dog Night called Joy to the World. I love that 33. I played it over and over again during recess in Mrs. Stalder's class. Honestly, owning it gave me some stature with the girls, which, uh, given my overall appearance at age 10, I desperately needed. <laughs> Big Lots has resurrected the song for its Christmas promotion. You might have seen that. Tying the lyrics to decorating your home and some uh, super playful family moments. It really is cute and frankly would make me want to shop there uh, if I were to shop, which actually I don't because we order everything online now. So I think we've had packages come to our door just about every day. Well, in the beginning of the ad, they contrast the fun-filled three-dog night version of Joy to the World with the original hymn sung by four middle-aged people, red and green adorned Christmas carolers. Well, you know which, which side wins that battle. None of that, however, none of that, however, would bother the writer of this original carol. One, because he died long ago. But secondly, even then, he never knew what would happen to this poem that he wrote. As Rich said tonight, this is the last in our series called Carols. In previous weeks, we did Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. We did Go Tell It on the Mountain. And we did O Holy Night. And you can go online and watch online uh, all of those messages through our website. One of the books that we've enjoyed reading for all of these messages is a book called Stories Behind the Best Loved Songs of Christmas. And it tells a story of the author of Joy to the World, whose name is Isaac Watts. Now, Isaac was born in England in 1674, and he was not born into a play-by-the-rules family. His father held to spiritual beliefs that were way outside of the mainstream. The elder Watts was influenced by Protestant teachings, actually beliefs that are widely held today. But back then, they were not approved by the Church of England, nor the established scholars. So Watts, the elder Watts, was a true rebel and actually was in prison the day that Isaac was born. Well, that radical spirit rubbed off on Isaac. He had an inquisitive spirit. He questioned everything. He was never content with the status quo. He was gifted. And early on, his genius was identified by a local physician, a friend of the family. And he offered to send him to some of London's best universities. But Isaac said no. And, quote, he preferred to take his lot among the dissenters. And he went to a school that was less well known. But like other young people of his day, Watts found church music, specifically, to be bland and colorless, lacking emotion, and just flat out uninspiring. And when he complained to his father about it, his dad challenged him to do something. Well, that conversation lit the spark. Before he was finished, Isaac had written more than 600 hymns, 
many that we still sing today. He wrote theological essays. He wrote hundreds of poems. He became well-known and greatly loved in England as well as in the American colonies. Even Benjamin Franklin published one of his hymnals. But before you think everything was very easy for Watts, it wasn't. And there's one story that provides a lot of insight into his inner life and the pain that he carried. At the age of 26, actually this picture doesn't really show it. They actually say that the pictures of Watts sort of doctored him up a little bit. But at the age of 26, Watts became the pastor of a church in London. And his writings were widely publicized. And one young woman was very inspired and impressed. Elizabeth Singer. She established a correspondence with him and became a huge admirer. So much so that she proposed to him by letter without ever meeting him. And he accepted her proposal. And she traveled anxiously to London to meet him. Now Singer had never seen him. And later she wrote this about her experience of their first face-to-face meeting. He was only five feet tall, with a sallow, which means like a yellowed face, and a hooked nose, prominent cheekbones, small eyes, and a death-like color. She immediately caught off the engagement and went back home. As you might suspect, Watts was heartbroken. And because of it, he threw himself even more vigorously into his work And he never again in his life sought a romantic companionship. And driven, on top of that, driven by the disappointment, Watts studied and he read and he wrote with such intensity that it actually undermined his health. And as a result, he suffered lifelong bouts of mental illness. But despite all that, Watts wrote and he wrote and he was driven by a desire to make church Music more accessible to the everyday person. And it was while studying Psalm 98 that Isaac was moved to write his most famous song. He studied the phrase from verse 4 in that chapter, which reads, Shout to the Lord all the earth, break out in praise and sing for joy. Focusing on that verse and the verses that followed, he wrote a poem called Joy to the World. Now this poem, interestingly enough, was first sung to the tune of another hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Now when Watts died in 1748, the lyrics remained trapped, if I could say that, in a musical score not fitting to the song's exuberance. It needed a lift. So, another figure enters into our story. An American composer by the name of Lowell Mason. Now, in the middle of the 19th century, Mason was Boston's most prominent publisher. He also wrote more than 600 hymns. And after composing new melodies for two new songs of Handel's Messiah, Mason composed a musical score called Antioch. You might wonder, what is Antioch? Well, Antioch is a city from Bible times. Uh, It's in modern-day Syria. 
And actually, two of the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys were launched from that city. Well, the music, this was a musical score, the music of Antioch begged for the right lyrics. And Mason found them in a dusty English hymn book. He found them in the energy of the music of joy to the world. Still, one more person is needed to tell the story of how this hymn became so popular. This time, a woman. And this time, an American singer, a famous performer. In 1911, Elise Stevenson. She was famous for a song, Only You That Are uh, like even older than me, and I'm pretty old, know the song Shine on Harvest Moon. She was the one that popularized this song. I see some of you are not wanting to admit that you know that song. But in Christmas at 1911, she joined Trinity Choir for a release of Joy to the World. And the old company, Victor Records, released it as a single. And it rose to number five on the charts of that day. The first time a song by Watts R. Mason had ever shown up on a pop culture playlist. Today, Joy to the World remains the most published hymn in North America. But how did it get so tied to Christmas? Nobody is sure. Scripturally, it is a song for any season. Unlike the other carols, it does not draw its inspiration from Jesus' birth. One could argue that the coming of Jesus in the first stanza is as much about Jesus' second coming as it is his first. It is not clear from Psalm 98 nor the carol which coming is actually in view. And it is not critical for us to appreciate the song to know. For both advents of Jesus, both comings of Jesus move in the same trajectory with the second completing what was started in the first. So let's read Psalm 98 and see if we can feel the same things as Watts did the day in a moment of reflection when this song burst forth. Will you stand as I read Psalm 98? Sing to the Lord. Sing a new song to the Lord. For he has done wonderful deeds. His right hand has won a mighty victory. His holy arm has shown saving power. The Lord has announced his victory. And has revealed his righteousness to every nation. He has remembered his promise to love and be faithful to Israel. The ends of the earth have seen the victory of our God. Shout to the Lord, all the earth. Break out in praise and sing for joy. Sing your praise to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and melodious song, with trumpets and the sound of the ram's horn. Make a joyful symphony before the Lord, the King. Let the sea and everything in it shout its praise. Let the earth and all living things join in. Let the rivers clap their hands in glee. Let the hills sing out their songs of joy before the Lord, for He is coming to judge the earth and the nations with fairness. Thanks be to God. This is His Word. Maybe seated. Now you may have noticed that this psalm has a definite movement. 
It grows and rises towards a glorious crescendo. In the beginning, the people of God are called to sing a new song. For God has done marvelous things. Things that cause wonder and awe. And they are to never forget how God has saved them. Secondly, not only the people of God, but the entire world is called to burst forth or break into song. God deserves praise. God deserves recognition. God deserves glory. God deserves honor from every, every corner of the planet. Now, the global reach of this is extremely significant. It means that this God, who the Jews called Yahweh, this God is universal. Meaning he's unlike the gods of the ancient world that were glued only to one tribe. Yahweh is different. He does not belong exclusively to one tribe or one region or one age or time or culture. He's a God then. He's a God now. He's a God in the future. If you read there verse 6, the imagery of trumpets and the blast of a ram's horn. What did that mean? What, did that, what does that conjure up in the imagination? Well, it echoes a coronation. It echoes the inauguration of a new king. And the coronation of the king is the climax. And the author personifies all of creation joining in at the majestic coming of the king. The fish, the animals, the plant world, the trees, big and small, rivers and mountain ranges, all of physical creation is part of this growing choir. What comes to my mind is the effect or the feeling of a modern day flash mob. You know what I mean? Starts small, one singer, and then it begins to grow two or three singers, and then it extends, and then it saturates into an entire city square, so that by the end, all the ordinary bystanders are swept along by the music and becoming a part of the joyous celebration. In the author's epic vision of Psalm 98, nothing in the world is left out, nothing remains untouched, nothing is missed, excused, or forgotten at the coming of the king. And who is the king? Who is the king? Isaac Watts, in Joy to the World, rightly identifies Jesus as the coming king. That is part of his identity. Jesus is a king. It is why we feel a chill run up our spines when we hear the singing of Handel's Messiah. It is why we stand when the choir proclaims Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords and declares that he shall reign forever and ever. In the Christmas story that we hear, Jesus is often spoken of as meek and mild. He does not fight back when ridiculed. He appears passive and is to some degree passive when rejected. He gives grace and mercy 
freely. Jesus is all of these things. But if that is all that you know about him, you have missed an important part of the story. An important part of who he is. The identity of Jesus was not hidden to those who were closest to him. Has his ministry entered its final stages? Jesus took his disciples on a little field trip. They left Israel and they stood together in a Roman city built to, um, uh, built to honor Caesar Augustus. Augustus was the Roman emperor and Roman law demanded that emperors be worshipped. That was a terrible dilemma for a pious Jew. They could not worship Yahweh and the state. Augustus represented evil and terror. And so in that symbolic setting, Jesus turned to his disciples and asked them, Who do the people say the Son of Man is? Son of Man was a reference to himself. Who do the people say the Son of Man is? Jesus is not taking a public opinion poll here. And it isn't that he doesn't know the answer himself. He asked a question to get them to search their own hearts. And by asking this question about his identity, he forces them to clarify and confess exactly what they believe. In a few short months, there will be no more time for indecision. They will have to decide whose side they are on. Now, if you're one of the twelve, you don't want to get this wrong. This is like a final exam after three years of school boiled down to one fill-in-the-blank question. A wrong answer would not only be embarrassing in front of Jesus and your peers, but will be infamously, infamously recorded in the Bible for the rest of history. So who will speak up? Peter. Of course, Peter. Courageous and impulsive, Peter was willing to give it a try. He answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter got it. Peter passed the final exam. What did it mean that Jesus was the Christ? Again, we need to see it from a Jewish point of view. If you were a Jew in the days of Christ, in the days of Jesus, the coming of the Messiah was in the air. Your parents talked about it. Your rabbi talked about it. You heard it in the chatter of the marketplace that one day, according to the Bible, God would send a Savior, a Messiah. And that Messiah would bring freedom He would end oppression, and he would restore Israel to its former glory. Your hope, your vision of the future was wrapped around the coming Messiah, or as Peter says, in this instance, the Christ. Literally, the word Christ means Messiah, the anointed one, or it means the king. So when Peter responded to Jesus' question, This is exactly what he had in mind. And Jesus affirmed, yes, Peter, you are correct. Jesus' identity as a king is why the wise men sought the location of his birth. 
It is why King Herod massacred innocents to destroy any potential rival to the throne. Jesus' identity as king is why Matthew, why the Gospel of Matthew begins his story with a genealogy. Because in doing so, he sought to prove historically Jesus was a direct descendant of King David. Everybody knew the Messiah would be a descendant of David. And finally, it was a claim to kingship that was the final result of Rome. They ironically nailed a sign to the cross above his head, identifying his crime as king of the Jews. This confession that Peter made, Jesus, you are the Christ, a king. You are the son of the living God. Was not something simply to be repeated in a Sunday school class, but it literally, it literally changes. It changes everything. It changes everything. By accepting Jesus as king and believing that he was the king Peter understood the mystery of life. He understood its purpose and meaning. He understood how to connect and relate to God in a real and a personal and authentic way. The confession still changes us today. It's still changing people's lives today. How so? How does it change us? I'd like you to hear how Understanding Jesus as King changes us practically. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to invite to the stage Alex Fabian. Come on up, Alex. I've had a nice round of applause for Alex. <laughs> Alex is our student director here at Linworth. And I asked him to tell a slice of his story and how the belief in Jesus as King has changed his life. Thanks, Chris. Um, I became a believer at the age of 15, and it was during this portion of my life when, honestly, I wanted nothing to do with God. I didn't want to waste my time reading the Bible. I didn't want to go to church. I wanted absolutely nothing to do with God. My idea of God was that he was forgetful. My idea of God was that he played favorites. My idea of God was that he just gave people what they wanted because they were good people. But looking back, I can see that I wanted nothing to do with God because I was convinced that he wanted nothing to do with me. But when I met God and I actually started a relationship with Jesus and got to know him as my king, all of that shifted. My entire worldview changed and my eyes and my heart were open to the fact that it wasn't about how I felt about God, but rather it was about how he felt about me. And I think that's a big sticking point for us in our lives. I think that's something that we struggle with, whether you've been a Christian for 15 years, 10 years, 5 years, or you're here tonight and you're seeking. I think we get so caught up in how we feel about God that we forget that it's actually about how He feels about us. When we read the Bible and we see all the things that are promised to us, those aren't based on how we love God, if we love God enough or if we do the right things, but they're based simply on how He feels about us. See, when Jesus becomes our king, our whole identities are changed. We're changed and saved from whatever sin is holding us back, and we're saved to the glory that God has for us in the kingdom that we are now members of. When we meet him and he becomes our king, we have hope, but not hope in this world. We have hope in the next world. 
And when we meet Jesus as our king, we can live with a peace that cannot be shaken. It can't be disturbed, no matter our circumstances. We are anchored in the hope of a Savior that gave up his life to conquer death on the cross. When I first became a Christian, though, like so many of us, I had questions. I didn't, there, were, there were so many things I didn't understand. And the biggest one for me was forgiveness and grace. See, I thought grace was like a number line. And in the middle, there was a zero. And on the left, there were the negatives. And on the right were the positives. And the goal of your life, or my life, or whomever's life it was, was to get as close to zero as possible. So for every negative thing you did, you got a negative one or a negative two, or if you're having a bad day, maybe seven or eight. And then for every good thing you did, you would earn back so to try to get closer to zero. So after I became a Christian, I, I was at my friend's house, and his dad was a, a well-seasoned Christian. And he was asking me questions, and he asked me if I understood forgiveness and grace. I was like, of course, I got this. And I explained to him my number line theory. <clears throat> And he looked at me, and he goes, no, 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 Alex, that's, that's not how it works. See, no matter how far to the left you are, no matter how many negatives you have in your life, the moment that you choose Jesus as your king, that's all gone. You don't have to earn back your salvation. You can't do the right thing to earn it back. And so in that moment, my entire world changed. My life was literally, literally radically changed in that moment. And as I, as I started to read the Bible more, it became more and more real to me. To my identity was no longer in my shortcomings, but my identity was in the fact that there was nothing that I could possibly do that would ever separate me from the love of the Father because I met Him as my King. There's a, a Bible verse, a group of Bible verses uh, in, in Ephesians chapter 1, and it's, it's verses 3 through 17, and, and I'm just going to paraphrase here. But it basically says that in love, in love, which means because of love, as a result of love, God chose us for adoption as sons and daughters. Now, He did this before the foundation of the world was ever formed. He did this before we ever walked the face of this earth. He did this because He loved us. These verses helped me to fully understand that God is not a forgetful God. He's not a distant God. He's a God that's always there to love and care for His children. And like I said again, my life was so radically changed when I realized His affections for me and not my affections for Him. One of the most prevalent ways, honestly, that I can see how meeting Jesus as my King has changed my life is being a husband and a father. I'm about to be a father for the second time. My, my incredibly pregnant wife and I uh, have a, a perfect baby girl. She will be two in January, and she's perfect. I wish she would just stay this way forever. Uh, but we're about to have a baby boy, honestly, Friday. Seriously, no jokes. In five days, our son will be born, and I'm literally just numb with excitement. I could not be more excited. Being a husband and a father, though, has changed me because it's helped me see the ways that God has made me more into the person that he created and designed me to be. I'm able to love my wife and my kids with a love that I have because I first experienced that love that God has for me. I've encountered that love from God in such a way that it's changed my identity. And because of that love, 
I am able to love my wife and my children that way. And it's this very same king that loves you and loves me that was born some 2,000 years ago as a tiny baby to, her, to a teenager and her terrified fiancé in a manger. The very same love that when he was born, the heavens unleashed for the full glory and power of God to be put into the son that he loved so that you and me may encounter him and be changed by that love when we meet him as our king. So that's just a, a little bit of my story. Uh, thanks for letting me share that with you today. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. Jesus is a king. In Psalm 98, that's the picture that Watts saw, a coming king and a world responding with unbounding and unabashed absolute joy. Here was a king who was not only Messiah or Savior of the Jews, but of the entire world. He removes the curse, he makes the blessings flow, and he reigns with truth and grace. You know, it's also true, though, isn't it, that as of now, we don't yet taste those blessings quite in their fullness yet. We still experience illness and disappointment and failure and hurt and loss. This is why Psalm 98 hints, and when the writer wrote it hundreds of years before Christ, he couldn't necessarily discern if it was the first or second coming of Christ. But it's why Psalm 98 hints not only at Jesus' first coming, but also his second. His second, when he will fully remove the curse. And he will make all things new. You know, we need a Savior, but we also need a King. We need a King who will fight for us. We need a king who will claim us for his own and bring us under his care and protection. Every day, all of us, while we still live today, we feel the heaviness of living in a world divided from God, divided from others, divided from creation, and even sometimes divided from ourselves. And somewhere inside each of us, when we peel back the everyday desires that so easily drive us. And when we look deep into our souls, we find there is a longing for inner peace. There's a hope there for some kind of return to the garden. You know, we hear the echoes of this desire to return to the garden everywhere. We hear it in our quest for equality. It's what we feel in our hearts when a wrong is righted. It's all over our art. Songs this past year like Themes for a New Earth by a secular group or First World Problems by a Christian group show the heart's ache for a better world. You know, it just makes me think that maybe Maybe you all, maybe all of you, maybe some of you, maybe some of you that are there, 
Maybe you think that all the jolliness and all the happiness around Christmas is just for children. Just for kids. We hear that, right? It's all about the kids. Maybe you're here tonight and you think that the jolliness and the happiness and the fa-la-la is for children. And now that you're grown up and a little more sophisticated, you know that happiness doesn't exist anymore. It's why I told the stories about Isaac Watts, because he also knew disappointment. And he knew heartache. But, but, he also had a conquering joy. Because he intimately knew this coming victorious king. And Psalm 98 just radiated and pulsated with it. He saw a coming victorious king who had the power to break the curse. He had the power to bring down the mighty from their thrones. He had the power to overcome the darkness. And that hope coursed through his veins. And it kept Watts from becoming hardened and embittered. And it kept him from being given over to despair. And just simply surviving. You know, Watts knew a secret. He knew a secret. I want to share it with you tonight. That Christmas is not mere child's play. Christmas and its message is the stuff of courage. It's the stuff of courage. Because it keeps one childlike in their faith. But victorious In their grown-up struggles. That's the hope that pulsates with every song we sing. And every carol that we hear. That hope. That victory can be yours. And it can be yours tonight. By making the very same confession. And a confession is simply a statement of belief. The same confession that Peter did, that yes, Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ. You are the King. And you are the Son of the living God. If you've never made that confession, will you tonight consider making that confession your own? Let me call the uh, band up. And will you join me as we pray together? Father, thank you so much for this Christmas season. And we thank you that you seek to touch and you seek to make tender every heart that is here. Thank you for the confession that Peter made 2,000 years ago, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You are the Savior. You are our King, who will return and who will make everything right 
and make all things new again. We thank you for your first coming and the promise of your second coming. And now, Father, allow us to enter in in our imaginations to the beauty and the majesty and the glory of that first night when it all began. For Christ's sake and his glory, to honor and celebrate him, we pray tonight. Amen. Amen.